You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a former professor of economics at Brown University and an economist and data scientist in Silicon Valley, now a researcher and writer. While in academia, he was a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and continues to hold an affiliation with the Population Studies and Training Center at Brown. In 2020, he served as a lead policy consultant on early childhood and non-K-12 child development issues for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. Holding a PhD in economics from Harvard University, his latest book is titled The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Nate Hilger. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for hosting me, Adi. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. I think you covered most of the basics in your very gracious intro. I am previously a professor of economics. I got a PhD in economics. It's shaped how I view the world. I, um, I Today, I work as a data scientist, and I am obsessed with child development and how we can use our democratic government more wisely to help a lot more children reach adulthood more prepared for success. Okay, so your latest book is titled The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. So tell us a bit about this book and then how, how it came about and, and give us a quick overview. Sure. This book came out indirectly of my own research as a professor. I got to work on some really big, amazing data sets and study some cool patterns in child development. And I then got to teach a class called Inequality of Opportunity in the United States at Brown University. And in teaching this class, I started to kind of realize that a lot of my students weren't really aware of a lot of the main things we were seeing in the economics of child development space, that, you know, reasonably moderate changes in childhood environments could have large long-term consequences for kids that now we could really measure in their incomes and their rates of teen pregnancy and crime and um, employment and all kinds of things that really matter. It wasn't just about test scores anymore. It was really about seeing through a new lens that we could shift the shape and texture of people's lives by altering their childhood opportunities, not in crazy utopian ways, but in really feasible, uh, tangible ways. Um, and so I started writing this book to try to represent some of these incredible things we were learning with new data and new statistical techniques to a, a broader audience, because I thought it was really important and should be in the back of people's minds as they vote and as they make public policy. And uh, that was kind of my goal for the book. Okay, so I wanted to start off by asking you about the unrealistic expectations placed on parents with regard to skill development that you mentioned. So you discuss how we're effectively setting up many parents to fail by expecting them to be reasonable for the skill development and talk about how services like tutoring, summer camps, etc. should have universal access. I agree with you that we shouldn't judge parents based on their personal ability to provide skill development, but I don't think it's unreasonable to judge them based on their ability to financially provide for, financial ser for professional services that help with the skill development. 
So I would argue that part of the responsibility of a parent is to see to it that they set up their children to succeed, and part of that is a financial responsibility. If they can't afford to provide adequate skill development for their children, then it's their job to work extra hours, to move to a different city where the services are cheaper or with better opportunities, to cut their other expenses, and so on to provide for their child. So I think in the same way, um, we don't judge parents based on their ability to, to cook a delicious meal, but we definitely judge them on their ability to make sure that their child is well-fed. Um, so do you think that's unreasonable or would count as overloading parents, and why or why not? Well, I, I don't think it's unreasonable, but I think it's unwise. And I think it, it comes from a long historical train of thought that is associated with leaving child development to women that were for a long time considered inferior to men. And that kind of put child development into this mental category of something that has to be kind of easy and has to be kind of feasible for everybody if they just work a couple extra hours or or read a, an extra article or, you know, put their, put really put a little extra effort into it. And I don't think that's how we view other complicated professional tasks, such as building a house or flying an airplane. We don't think that it is people's responsibility to fly themselves across the country if they need to do that. We think it's perfectly reasonable to ask, you know, for them to rely on a professional pilot to get, to get a, an airplane ticket. And if we do leave this very complex task of not only caring about children and being their advocate and loving them and comforting them and making them laugh and giving them joy in meeting, that's the stuff that parents can do. But if we rely on parents to you know, help their kids navigate the Byzantine college ecosystem, because states only provide about one college counselor to every 400 to 800 kids, if we rely on parents to have to choose between bad childcare centers and good childcare centers, in an ecosystem that is really the Wild West, if we rely on parents to find a tutor in another Wild West ecosystem where you might spend $10 an hour or $300 an hour and you have no idea why and you don't know anything about math and you've never had a tutor yourself, if we rely on parents to do all these things because we think it's kind of their moral responsibility, we will wind up seeing mass failure. Just like if we relied on parents to fly airplanes or build their own houses and do all their own plumbing, we would see mass failure. And the consequences of that really affect all of us. So I think it's worth kind of interrogating our own expectations of parents for the sake of our broader social and economic strength as a society. Okay. Um, so I think what's interesting here is then, um, as, as compared to what alternative, that, that sort of question, right? Um, because you, you, mentioned, you touched on quite a few issues, um, talking about sort of um, un, unregulated industries like tutoring or college counseling. Um, you, you described them as the Wild West. So would the alternative be to have some sort of standardization, as in, you know, every tutor needs to be have some minimum level of qualification, like, you know, lawyers or doctors, um, to, you know, regulate the industry or the profession as a whole, um, to have some sort of benchmark or um, advisor that can guide parents through this process? Um, you know, what, what would be the, the sort of ideal world alternative? Yeah, both of those are, are reasonable ideas. I don't think I have a strong opinion about the one best way to do this. I'm, I'm definitely aware that there are hazards to this. It, we, we have, uh, there is this very much phenomenon of over-licensing in our society, where if you have committed a felony by, you know, stealing $500 when you were, you know, 18 years old, 
Now you're 30. In many states, you can't be a, a barber to cut people's hair and make a living for yourself. Likewise, there are a lot of people who could be great teachers in our society, and they don't have teaching credentials. And the research suggests that is a very poor predictor of teacher quality. So I, there are hazards in terms of overregulating an occupation like tutor or childcare worker. So we would have to do that carefully. Um, but I do think we, what I show in the book is that getting this right is a really important problem for society. And Republicans and Democrats should start from the premise that if we are able to do this right and build an ecosystem that helps all parents access these kinds of services, it will greatly strengthen the economic position of children when they reach adulthood and our broader society. And so there should be bipartisan, evidence-based discussions about how to achieve that goal. Like we need airplanes, we need roads, we need bridges, we need certain kinds of infrastructure. There's not necessarily one simple best way to do that, but we should all start from the premise that we need these things. And that's how we should view access of parents to professional child development services. Okay, so what scares me here then is sort of the idea of getting the government involved in doing these things. So the same same way we don't have, um, we might have the government, you know, license who can be a pilot or, or you know, a plumber. But we don't we don't regulate um, sort of the you know the, we don't have the Democrats and Republicans you know coming together in sort of a bipartisan support to say okay well everyone needs a plumber so here's our plan to make sure we're going to provide people with plumbers and here's our plan to make sure we're going to provide people with pilots that we we sort of leave those activities up to the private sector um, and so um, you know when when you need a plumber or you need to fly on you know an airline. You, you look it up, um, you, you search up the plumber, you read online reviews, you maybe talk to your friends who've used a, the, the plumber before and they recommend one that worked for them. Um, and in that way, the, the sort of market forces take care of, um, you know, the good and bad actors in that sense. Um, so do, do you think that there's, um, wh what would be in your mind sort of the balance between public and private sector involvement in, in providing these services? Yeah, there could be a lot of these mechanisms you're talking about are great mechanisms. I, I you know, we just hired um, some movers and Yelp for movers is so valuable. And that's a private, that's a private market mechanism. And it's, it's wonderful. I think the key missing thing here is that most parents can't afford to get a lot of these services. So what really needs to happen is there need to be public subsidies. And so you can think about medic how Medicare works. Um, there's a big private market component here. Basically, people get subsidized health insurance, and then they can largely choose their own physicians and they can use private um, mechanisms like word of mouth, like Yelp, like Google reviews to decide which doctor is the best fit for them. But not anybody can be a doctor and maybe there would be accreditation organization, you know, even private accreditation organizations and competing private credit, private accreditation organizations. And all of them could be recognized as eligible for um, reimbursement under a public subsidy system, for example. So it, this doesn't need to be any kind of monolithic um, government provision of a uniform, mediocre service. It could be uh, a way to get more lower income, working class and middle class parents into the market as viable consumers of these services to really strengthen the whole largely private ecosystem. Okay. Um, so next you talk about this invisible trust fund idea, which, as I understand it, posits that the basket of skills developed by each child are an asset that manifests itself in the form of higher incomes and greater economic success. So I think that idea makes intuitive sense, but I wanted to ask you about the extent to which you believe parents are responsible for providing that trust fund as opposed to the children themselves. 
Um, for example, when children go to college, they can choose an engineering major, for example, which provides valuable skills, or a theater major, which provides very little value. Um, so in the same way, yeah. I, I'd oh, say... I'm, I'm wincing for all the, the, the talented actors and, and playwrights out there right now, but I, I get your basic idea. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, um, you know, ROI, um, an engineering major, um, you know, at, at a sort of um, broad, um, you know, average, you know, level, um, you can say that... In, yeah, you can say that an, an, an engineering major is going to be worth a lot more than a theater mm-hmm. major. Um, very few theater majors might make it big, but that's that. those are sort of outliers in, in a way. Um, so in the same way, I'd say that the decisions made by the children themselves that are independent of their parents. So a lot of children will choose the extracurriculars that they want to do. They'll choose the classes they want to take in high school and, you know, what they want to do in college and, and so on. Um, so I, I would say that the children themselves um, are the biggest factor in determining the size of that invisible trust fund. Um, that's just the way I, I would perceive it. So how would you compare the size of the role of children and the role of parents in determining how big that invisible trust fund is? Well, I would push back on this idea that children get to do whatever they want magically when they're 18 years old and reach college. You know, I'm curious how you feel. When do you feel that children start making decisions? Because by age five in our country, when children reach kindergarten, when they first get access to full-time publicly, you know, actually full-time, but when children first get access to our public education system, at that point, when they're entering the door, lower income and minority kids, you know, Black and Native American and Hispanic kids are a full standard deviation behind their more advantaged peers. So that's kindergarten. And, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why that snowballs and and um, diverges more over time. So if I, if a kid reaches, you know, you know, their junior year of high school, and they've been struggling since kindergarten to understand and engage with their class material, I, I don't really think it's fair to then blame them for not majoring in astrophysics or chemical engineering, when they barely get into when, when first of all, when they might not even graduate from high school, which is only an outcome for about 80% of kids in our country. And then when they get into a local community college, uh, you know, it's just, I, I think it's hard to put all responsibility for these outcomes on children, which largely reflect, reflect the disadvantages they faced starting from birth. So I'm, I'm curious, at what age do you think children are kind of like responsible for their decisions? Well, yeah, there is there is sort of that balance, right? Um, because obviously, uh, you can't say that uh, um, you you can't look to a five year old and say, well, it's the five year old's fault that there are standard deviation behind in kindergarten. That, right. that would be absurd. Um, and at the same time, I think it's not totally unreasonable to look to parents, um, the the parents of those children, and say, well, is are, are you doing everything you can to provide your child with the best upbringing? You know, I think in a in an environment, uh, especially like now, we have millions of unfulfilled jobs. Um, you know, all across the country, there are countless opportunities. I think it's very difficult um, also to look to two um, parents, you know, and say, well, if both of you were working as hard as you possibly can, um, then I don't think it's it's reasonable to say that your child would still be facing the situation that they are. So I think that if their children are in such a heavily disadvantaged position, there is some blame to, to be put on the parents and say, well, are you really doing all that you can? Okay. Yeah. Would you say that's I mean, reasonable? Um, I know it's an it's a view shared by a, a large share of folks. I understand that. Um, I will point out that childcare costs. If you have two kids, if if you have done the voluntary work of giving two human beings to our society, 
which is a massive undertaking. You have to go through pregnancy, which is a major physical and mental strain. And you have to, um, you know, do everything, do all the late nights for, for feeding kids, dealing with their naps, their gas, their screaming. <laughs> if you give this gift for free to society, then um, to get really good at childcare, you have to spend about $13,000 per kid right now. In many parts of our country, it's more than $13,000 per kid. We have a public education system starting at age five because we don't think it is a reasonable expectation for parents to buy kindergarten through 12th grade. Well, guess what? School is at least that expensive before age five. And we know that the absence of this opportunity for lower income families is causing these huge uh, achievement gaps for kids when they reach kindergarten. So I'm curious why you think, uh, I mean, I guess, do you, do you believe that public education is kind of um, making it too easy for parents? Do you think we should roll back uh, public education? No, I think there is sort of a, a distinction to be made between an, a situation where, um, you know, we, we were saying to parents, um, you know, you could, you could be doing, um, what, what, what the, the, the situation that you're providing for your children right now is not ideal. And for a large, um, portion of those parents, we can, I, I think there is a division between saying, well, you do bear some individual responsibility, um, for, you know, your outcomes in life. But at the same point, um, I also think, um, it's reasonable to say, well, if we got rid of, um, that, that we don't live in an ideal utopian world where all parents are going to be able to, you know, provide that sort of household. And I think it's, if we want the next generation of children to be properly educated, um, then there is some some um, space for things like public education and, you know, subsidized college and those sorts of things to, to yeah. set up those children because there's a public ROI on that. And I think you talk about that, right? So yeah. um, we as a society get a huge return on our investment uh, for pu public education, um, right? Several times at least. Um, and, our, and our universities. Yeah, um, in, in the same way. Um, and so I'd say in an ideal world, um, you know, you could entrust parents with being able to provide a sufficient income. Um, you know, parents would only would wait to have kids until, you know, they're able to financially provide for them. They would, you know, be willing to make these sorts of financial sacrifices. But that's that's sort of in a utopian world. And to the extent that we don't live in that, I, I think it's still reasonable. And that's that's sort of where this discussion comes in, right, is determining where is that reasonable extent in terms of what the public sector should provide or yeah. what the extent of those subsidies should be. So I think that's still a valuable conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really valuable for childcare, especially to ask why we are starting our public education system after lower income, working class, to some extent, middle class and disadvantaged minority kids have already fallen massively behind. I think there was this longstanding view that maybe early childhood was a special time when kids just needed to be kind of, kind of like cared for in a very basic way, just kept safe by their parents. And we now know that is radically false, that if kids are not immersed in language-rich, you know, developmentally challenging, appropriate learning environments from birth, they don't get to grow like as much as they could. And there are huge consequences to not having this universal access to these kinds of fairly complex, sophisticated learning environments. And I think it's not just about that zero to five huge gap in our public child development system. You know, we call it a public education system for K-12, but we could really think about that as a first ingredient, a first sort of um, pillar of what should be a broader child development system. And all the other services that I advocate for in the book 
have the same kind of massive ROI that you talk about as our K-12 system and our university system. Early education, tutoring, parental leave for at least a couple uh, months to get parents and kids bonded and, and relaxed and in a good, you know, um, healthy way. Um, mental health services, good health care for kids. A lot of these things looked at through this ROI perspective. If we ask parents to shoulder the full responsibility, we will get lousy results and kids will be hurt and they won't reach adulthood as productive as they could have. And that just seems like a very high price to pay for um, this norm that parents should be responsible for ar certain arbitrarily huge parts of child development, like zero to five, but not others like K-12. Um, okay. And, and, and also, be, I wanted to push back on one other thing you said earlier, too. You mentioned that kids have some responsibility for choosing college majors. There's this perception that kids are often choosing underwater basket weaving and, and theater and poetry and things when they reach college. That is not true. The, the vast majority of college majors are things that are, are very practical things that show kids are really trying to support themselves in adulthood. They're things like, like science, like um, healthcare administration like law, you know, law clerking and um, nursing, you know, they're, they're things that have a lot of labor market value. So I think it's a good example. You mentioned if there are some kids who make unwise decisions in college, but um, that can be a separate discussion. But I just wanted to push back on that, that sort of misperception sometimes that kids are squandering their college opportunities. Um, yeah. Um, so I think at the same extent, and I wanted to, to sort of touch on that idea as well, um, because it sort of got left behind. Um, is that to the extent that there are children who perhaps um, come into high school perhaps so disadvantaged that, you know, it's not reasonable to say to them, well, um, you know, you should start taking advanced classes in math and science and then potentially put yourself on track to, to an astrophysics degree. But yeah. at the same time, for there is a, a large subset of the population who isn't coming into high school, you know, disadvantaged or standard deviation behind. They're coming into high school, you know, with reasonable um, set of opportunities. I would say that that would be, you know, it, it's not, you know, that it would be a substantial subset, if not the majority of people would come into high school with, and we can sort of reasonably expect them to make the d distinction between saying, okay, well, um, you know, do I want to take advanced math classes or do I want to take this um, theater class or do I want to take this fine arts class and yeah. to, to look at it and say, well, which is going to pay off better for me in the future? And then when they go to college, um, you know, they have multiple options to say, well, do I want to go to community college for two years first and then get transferred to a state university or do I want to pay $80,000 a year at this private, you know, university? So I think there are, um, you know, reasonable um reasonable um, expectations or reasonable responsibilities that can be placed on many children. I understand there are a subset of children for which we can't say the same thing, but for most children, I think there is a, a large portion um, of, you know, their, their um, trust fund, their, their basket of skills can be attributed to their own um, personal decision-making. I would just point out that a lot of these decisions to work hard and do the more difficult college major and, take those more advanced high school classes, it's interesting that these decisions are a lot easier for higher income kids, a lot easier. So do we think that these higher income kids have more integrity and more personal responsibility? Or do we think that maybe they're getting some extra support outside of their own personal volition provided to them by their parents and the resources that their parents make available to them through tutoring and counseling and test prep and mental health care and excellent physical health care? There's a reason why higher income kids are so much more likely to graduate from high school, go to not only a two-year college, but a four-year college. 
and then choose the most lucrative majors and get the most productive, lucrative jobs. I don't think it's because higher income kids have more personal integrity. I think it's because they're getting more access to these kinds of support services. And it seems unfortunate to ask lower income and working class kids and disadvantaged minority kids to have higher levels of integrity than higher income kids and higher levels of personal responsibility to compensate for their much lower level of access to these kinds of professional support services. That's, that's, that's what I would, uh, that's kind of, I just would be, I'd be curious. Why do you think higher income kids are capitalizing on all these opportunities at such higher rates? Is it, is it something about their personality or is it maybe this broader access to, to these professional support services, partly Um, provided by their parents who have the college degrees and the professional skills and the professional networks to not only outsource these services to professionals, but to provide them directly themselves to their children. Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of those factors come into play, right? So if your parents are um, providing you with all the personal, with with private tutors and, um, you know, you go to a school in a, in a sort of a high income neighborhood where everyone is, you know, everyone's parents, um, have advanced degrees. And so they all want to go to college. And so they're all going to be taking advanced classes here in an an environment where that's, that's, um, commonplace and expected. You have the resources to back that up. You know, you have, your school has, um, the teachers and the, the, they offer the advanced classes and they set you up. You, they have school counselors. So that from the day you come in, um, you can sort of map out your plan and say, okay, in four years, I'm going to be taking these, I'm going to be prepared to take these advanced classes and I should be able to do this when I go to college. Great. Um, yeah, so, beautiful. Yeah. Everyth- everything you're saying makes sense. So if rich kids get all that stuff and you agree that's a large part of what accounts for their much higher rates of success at every juncture of our educational and professional system, I'm, I'm basically arguing to make those kinds of services and opportunities more widely available. So I'm, I'm curious yeah, how um, that fits in. At, at the same time, um, I think that's that's where this sort of my last question that I, I had prepared for you um, really really comes in. Um, you know exactly to to you know as is relevant to this this sort of question is where does that ROI sort of pay off? Um, so we can obviously I think if you look at say high income parents, they might be investing tens of thousands of dollars um, per year in their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, low income parents may not be able to invest, you know, nearly anything. Um, they might be able to provide some basic necessities and beyond that, it would just be their K to 12 public school system. Um, so at, at what extent do you think we can, we can, um, draw this line, right? Because to provide everyone, I, I don't think it's reasonable to say, well, we provide everyone with a $60,000 a year private school, uh, private, uh, high school worth of resources. And at the same time, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to say that, well, we don't provide anyone with anything. So there's obviously a line to be drawn in the sand somewhere where we say at this point, we're getting the best return on our investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a data scientist, you're trained as an economist. Um, so do you think that the monetary returns in terms of increased tax revenue that we as a society can expect to yield um, is sort of the best potential investment for the amount of money that we would spend on this external skill development and parent support programs? And where would you say, how, how do we go about drawing that line? I think the place to draw that line is um, you want things that have you know, high rates of return, like you mentioned, like the rate of return on stocks. When you put money into the corporate sector in our country, you get um, a pre-tax rate of return around 10%, post-tax around 7%. And that just gives you a sense of like, you can generate, uh, you can generate profit and, you know, benefits for people with a dollar put into our business sector today. A lot of investments in children have much, much higher rates of return. When you account for not only the private benefits to the children themselves, but to the broader society, when you when a kid doesn't get the opportunity they, they need 
to have good career options, they often turn to crime. They turn to teen pregnancy. They wind up relying on public services. And some of these outcomes are very expensive for our society, not only for taxpayers, but in the case of crime for victims of crime. You know, a, a murder, social scientists who think about violent crime put astoundingly high price tags, social price tags, you know, how much society should be willing to pay to avoid a marginal murder or, or you know, awful violent crime. And the evidence suggests that if we gave more kids access to opportunity in childhood, you would reduce crime rates, you would reduce dependence on social services in adulthood. And you would also wind up getting kids who do a lot more productive things in adulthood. You would get more scientists because kids would not only graduate from high school, but they would go to college. And you would get more entrepreneurs, you would get more, um, all, you know, skilled workers, software engineers, nurses, doctors. And that's kind of what underlies these ROI calculations, which have found for real programs historically, that these mechanisms are not fantasies, they, they really play out. And we sh we have a huge underinvestment in children in terms of what is warranted from this ROI, return on investment perspective. I don't think we should look at just the sticker price of these investments. When you mentioned that it's like prima facie unreasonable to spend tens of thousands of dollars per kid per year, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. You don't look at the cost of fixing the, the leak in your house. You know, if, if your house has a leaky roof and it's $10,000 to fix it, you don't say, I can't afford $10,000. That's not a wise financial way to proceed. You say, well, how much would it cost if I don't fix the leak in this roof? If your car has a problem, you don't say, I can't afford $800 to change my tires. You say, well, if I don't spend that $800 to change my tires, I don't have a car. And a new car costs $30,000. So I guess I'll pay the $800 to change those tires. And that means that a lot of these child development programs that we are currently declining to offer are really, it's, it's very expensive not to offer them. And so I think that's kind of the view that we should be taking is not just the sticker price, but the, the benefits and the costs considered together over the long time frame of children's future careers and uh, participate, you know, their participation in our society. And that and that that warrants a lot of what I call family care as the package of interventions I propose in the book, which are really a much richer child development system, building out our very limited K-12 system from birth through early career formation in people's early 20s. Okay, well, those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Hilger. It's been an extremely interesting conversation. Thank you so much, Adi. I really appreciate your skeptical perspective. I had a lot of fun debating with you, and I hope we get to continue the discussion sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.